by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. Environmental racism is genocide. I mean, my heart thinks about the communities, especially down in the Gulf and down in Cancer Alley. They're placed intentionally in communities and they are there not only polluting the community and taking up um, real estate value, depleting the real estate value. We're talking about people who may have lived on their land since sharecropping, since well after slavery. And their land is being taken from them or polluted. Their drinking water is being polluted by facilities that are going unregulated. That's Michelle Mapson, healthy community staff scientist at Earth Justice and the co-founder of Black Millennials for Flint. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Hey, Michelle. So, what is good to see you? Thank you. Yeah, no, no, no. It's definitely good to see you. So, man, I'm actually super excited for this conversation for so many different things. Let me just actually, this is kind of part of the conversation, but not part of the conversation, but just want to just ask your thoughts as a scientist. Uh, what are your thoughts on hearing that uh, Trump? And Melania have COVID. This is a yeah. I I have definitely I saw the news as well, and I think um, you know the practices that we know that are recommended with social distancing, with wearing masks, with being careful about you know being too close to people and having too many people around you. It's, it's sort of one of those things where we might expect it to happen almost. Um, given how many cases we see continuing to rise in this country, I'm not entirely surprised. Um, I mean, I wish them well. I hope that this isn't something that is debilitating, yet the timing is also a bit prevents. I, I would be remiss if I didn't say I wasn't skeptical, if I was being honest about the timing of it as well. But in some ways, it also felt like it was bound to happen. Well, science is real, right? That's what we, that's, that's just the, the bottom line to it. The bottom line is, I mean, we've known about viruses like this for decades. We've known the possibility um, we're a globalized world. And so, um, you know, the idea that something like this could happen, it was always sort of a ticking time. Um, it was, we would never know when or where, but um, I think what we're we're not used to seeing is the response, especially in this administration, not being one that would have really, um, you know, they could have done more to prevent the deaths and prevent the number of cases we see today. Um, other countries were able to do it. We're still really struggling in that area. But we knew that something like this was possible to have a global disease, a, a pandemic. Um, so that in and of itself, I think is a travesty and we have to reckon with that. Yeah, no, that's real. And we want to definitely, you know, for all those who've been impacted and affected by the coronavirus, particularly those in our community, um, we definitely want to hold them up and hope that either if they have lost someone um, or if they're dealing with this, we want to keep them in our, in our thoughts and prayers. And 
um, keep them lifted. But let's get to you. Uh, I mean, I'm excited to uh, to talk to you. And, um, you know, I know a little bit about your background and how amazing you are. But for folks who don't know who is Michelle Mapson, who is Michelle Mapson? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I would start with saying, I, I think my background definitely as a scientist is a part of my identity. Um, I do consider myself an advocate, especially for um, advocating against health disparities in black, in our community, in the black community. Um, I consider myself an unrelenting justice seeker. I've, I believe that we have to have intersectionality in the types of justice we're seeking whether it be around the environment, whether it be around police brutality and education and healthcare, it's all intersected. Um, and I think we're really seeing that come to a head today. Um, and really, I think my kind of my background, what kind of ties a lot of this together is I really believe we have to leave the earth better for um, those who are coming behind us. Sankofa, we have to reach back, we have to pull forward and we have to actually do our due diligence to protect um, protect the world as we know it so others can have a chance to thrive as well. Um, and I really credit that to my family. Um, I'm actually also a Bison, a Howard alum, and um, my grandfather was a graduate of Howard Medical School. So I thought I was gonna follow in his footsteps and go to Howard, become a doctor and practice medicine um, as an OBGYN. Um, he was the only black doctor in Princeton and Trenton um, for many years delivering babies to poor black women. And so that legacy was something I wanted to honor. Um, but I learned about climate change in, in, in an undergrad. I read Bill McKibben's book, um, Earth, and realized that there's a different crisis that we have to, mm -hmm. we have to tackle. And so that actually sort of led to a pivot where um, I wanted to learn more about how to prevent these health disparities from happening in the first place, prevent some of the climate disasters that we might see. And um, I started to lean more on my aunt's background. My aunt um, is Peggy Shepard. She's the founder and executive director of WE Act. And just knowing that she's already been a maverick in the field and having her guidance really helped me understand what what could be another area of need um, for kind of someone who's kind of up and coming in my career, my and in my generation um, to be a leader as well. So I would say, again, my family is a huge influence to my work and to my identity. Um, so I owe a lot to them. Yeah, no, I didn't actually know that Peggy Shepard. I, I didn't know that. That's actually amazing. Peggy's great. She's amazing. I mean, huge. She is amazing. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Still doing it. Yes. <laughs> yes, um, and fashionably, <laughs> as y'all know. Yes, indeed. I'll be, I'll be loving me some Peggy, boy. She be serious with it, but she be bringing the fire. I mean, <laughs> yo, man, that's, uh, that's great. And for folks who don't know, We Act is a great organization in New York. And if you are not supporting We Act, please go to their website and support them. They do work, not only in New York. I mean, obviously, they have a national focus as well in many cases, but um, just the connection there of understanding racial justice and climate justice. And I guess how that impacts you as a scientist. I mean, I know a lot of scientists and I know how they get to just deal with their beakers and their labs and, and, and you know, focus on one thing. But you, in your introduction of yourself, 
talked about your your background, obviously from the great school, the um, the powerful school of Howard University, which I also attended mo most definitely, uh, the Mecca. Uh, and so, and for those, for full disclosure, I I went there, and my, my dad also graduated and taught at Howard as well. Um, and so, I guess for me, one of the things as you're talking, how does that either help you or hinder you in your work? And both from the standpoint of how you observe, which I can, I can imagine that's probably beneficial, but also how much you didn't have to overlay and discuss certain things to uh, explain. How does that impact you as a scientist? Yeah, I mean, so my backgrounds after graduating from Howard, I um, went to grad school at the University of Michigan. So go blue, love, um, love Michigan as well. And I was studying public health. I was studying how the environment impacts our health and really also how does our environment not only impact it adversely, like negatively, but also what are some benefits to the environment? So what is the benefit of nutritious and healthy foods? What is the benefit of having access to green space um, and the intrinsic benefits, not only for our air and having cleaner air when we have access to green space, but having overall psychosocial benefits. So being able to work out outside and feel safe outside and have a community outside of our homes. Um, not all communities are created equal. We know that there are so many communities that may be burdened with environmental hazards like waste sites and air pollution and things like that. And you also see that those communities aren't the communities that have access to green space typically. So there's this, this not only burden that folks are experiencing, um, but a lack of intrinsic benefits. And so as a scientist, I'm really looking at the quantitative data. I wanna know, well, what is the impact that's having on people's health? I want to understand um, generational impacts, especially um, there's a really cool part of science called epigenetics that looks at the kind of our DNA and really understanding how that's mediated by the environment, how the expression of our DNA could actually be actually be inherited and passed on to our generation. So if you're a stressed person, if you've experienced stressors in your life, um, maybe you didn't grow up with enough to eat, maybe you um, were dealing with, with air pollution or indoor air pollutants in your home, well, those impacts can actually be passed down to your children and that can actually mm. impact their health before they're even born. Because if you think about it, the egg the, is for, obviously when you're pregnant, when a woman is pregnant, if she's having a daughter, those eggs are already formed in the womb. So we're talking about intergenerational connections. And so really teasing that out for the real world. Because yes, you, can, you have to study a lot of this in the lab. You have to do that work. So I'm more of a translator. So I look at the science and I'm able to understand what it's saying in the lab and in these scientific articles and papers and jargons, but understand how that might be impacting a person's life day to day. And what can we do either as an intervention um, to make improvements to a person's life um, and to really our generations. Again, this goes beyond what might be happening today. And I hope I'll get a chance to talk a little bit about lead because lead exposure certainly has intergenera intergenerational effects as well. Um, but really understanding that and making sure people understand that I think has been um, one place I've seen myself as being valuable in this work is, is, is you can't do this in a silo. You can't just do it for the sake of publishing the paper and getting recognized in academia. You have to be able to translate this to help people. Well, let's get into that a little bit. Well, and thinking about lead, I mean, as we know, 
Um, and we'll get more into, I want to, for folks who are listening, uh, we're going to get into your work around Flint and your, and your work around that. But I want to just kind of deal with the lead aspect over, overall, um, because we've been dealing with lead from the lead in our water and the lead in our paint. So let's talk about that. And I actually want to give you a reference point of Freddie Gray in Baltimore. Um, so uh, how does lead impact us as a community? And I mean, us, we specifically black and didn't listen to people of color. Um, how does lead, in, how, how has lead impacted us? And then how was lead connected to the movement for black lives? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's very interconnected. So Freddie Gray was born and raised in Baltimore. And what we do know is that as a child, he was lead poisoned. Um, and what we know about lead is that when it has, first of all, it has no place in our bodies. It's, it's, it's harmful um, by any amount in our bodies. And so um, it's a heavy metal. It um, can replace calcium in our bodies. So it actually, if, you, if, you're, if you're not, if you don't have enough calcium, if you don't have enough nutritious foods, it will actually be even more harmful. Um, wow. We know that it's in, yeah, yeah, it replaces the calcium in our bones and it actually gets stored in our bones. So what we know about lead is that it's a neurotoxin. It's, it means it's going to um, wreak havoc on our brains, on our brain development. That's why when we think about children and infants and even pregnant women, there's a huge um, need to make sure that kids are tested and make sure that they haven't been exposed to lead because, because it's a neurological toxin, we know that it can cause ADHD, it can cause autism, it can cause all kinds of behavioral issues in children, even visual and auditory issues and um, deficits in children. And so it's highly measurable from a quantitative standpoint, we understand the science behind it. Um, but because you can't taste lead, you can't see it, um, you can't smell it, you don't know it's there unless you test for it. And so in Baltimore, um, that's actually a city where there's a lot of lead in homes, uh, a lot of lead in dust, uh, because homes are, were built um, at a time where lead was still used in paint before we really understood how harmful it was. And so for homes that still have lead in paint, especially homes that might be in neighborhoods where, again, the housing stock is much older, you just have, don't have enough money to renovate, um, that's often where you'll see higher levels of, of poisoning in children. And so that's something that Freddie Gray dealt with. Um, he was not only poisoned as a child, he was, he was provided a settlement um, because this was done within federally um, funded housing. So there's actually some um, some settlement that had to happen. And even then there's predators who will, who will basically um, say, hey, you'll get this settlement over the course of your, you know, from now until you're 18, um, you'll get a certain amount of payments, but we'll give you this, this lump sum of money. And mm. from that lump sum, um, you know, you, you have what seems like a lot of money, but ultimately it's pennies on the dollar what that company might be making um so he was he was he fell prey to that issue um and again because of lead and the way it affects our body it makes us more it, it makes our reactions to kind of volatile situations um it, it's we're less in control in certain in certain aspects and so some would is that part of the flight of flight or fight definitely it's part of our our, our response to stressors for sure and it is that fight or flight response is heightened um and usually in the way of, of, of being more confrontational um so there have even been studies in prison populations that have showed that uh, there's a link between lead and those who have been um, incarcerated 
So there's some even more emerging research, I would say, but what we do know is it, it definitely impacts, again, our behavior. And another person I'll highlight in Baltimore who also is highly influential to, um, to our work is Corinne Gaines, who was impacted by lead poisoning as a child as well. And um, ultimately, and for folks who don't know who Corinne, folks who don't know who Corinne Gaines is, it's give like a little this little background on that. Yeah, I was. I'll go ahead and give some background. So Corinne Gaines, also um, a young woman from Baltimore, who was tragically killed in a police standoff um, again in Baltimore. So she was actually holding her son um, at the time um, when the police had come to her door. Um, she was actually an advocate, believe it um, or not. This is maybe a lesser known thing, but she was an advocate around the fact that she had been lead poisoned. And so um, she had been really active and, and vocal in the community. Some would surmise that 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 sort of her her run ins, unfortunately, with the law in the past might have been um, because of those being somewhat antagonistic, um, made that sort of standoff even heightened for her and for the police themselves. Um, but ultimately, when the police did enter her apartment, um, they shot her and they actually did. They shot and killed her. They shot her son. Um, her, her, her infant daughter was also in the um, in the house at that in the apartment at that time as well. Um, and she was tragically killed. So and this was all within this, a very like short time frame when Freddie Gray was also killed um, and brutally by the police. So this was, I think, for Baltimore, a really tragic time. And again, one of the common links between the two is the fact that lead was um, something they experienced poisoning as children. Wow, no, thank you for that. And just to make sure, I don't know if we actually talk about Freddie Gray specifically, but he also, these are two people who were lifted up in the movement for Black Lives because they were they were killed in different situations by police. Um, uh, we just heard about Corner Gaines and Freddie Gray was given a what was called a rough ride. And if you don't know what a rough ride is, is when you're put in the back of a a cop uh, police truck and with no seatbelt, and then you're, you're you're driven around in a way in which you can be damaged because you know you never you're you're handcuffed and you you're slammed to and from. And he was able his back was broken and other pieces on his body were broken that killed him. And as somebody who has been arrested and been put in the back of a police car, I know how crazy, you, you don't know. It's, that's, it, you feel every single bit of that. So that's not, the, the, in, that is very intentional. That isn't like, there. I've been in some, and most of my time, obviously protesting for our climate, but it's been many times when the police would ask me, they would say, hey, you okay back there? I'm like, no, I'm not okay, so slow down. And so, and so there are many times, so I know that when you're, what that means. Um, you know, Michelle, you worked at EPA. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, EPA right now, to me, represents more of the um, polluters protection agency than it does the environmental protection agency. And so, uh, and you were there in your time. And so you had, uh, you know, firsthand knowledge of how what the Trump administration has threatened our essential health protections and the fundamental right for people to live, work, and play in healthy communities. Um, so what was your experience actually working for EPA? And what what was the, I guess, the final straw that led you to, you know, I'm out of here. What, 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 what was that? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, so for some context, I graduated from grad school from Michigan 
2015. So my first kind of job outside of that was at EPA at headquarters in the Office of Children's Health Protection. And so at that time, I always like to call it kind of the fourth quarter of the Obama administration. I mean, he'd already been reelected. It's just a year-ish, two years, if you want to think about 2017, technically with the transition, that he would actually have time to do kind of what he really set out to do without having about, again, this election or anything like that. So it was a really exciting time to be at EPA. Um, Gina McPhee was um, the administrator at the time, and the Office of Children's Prote Health Protection is actually an office that is very close to, um, that usually works pretty closely with the Office of the Administrator. So we were sitting in meetings with, with Gina and, and discussing things around um, some really important legislation that had been passed, like the Toxic Substances Control Act being reformed, um, which would better protect people from toxic chemicals um, and help to regulate them because there are over 100,000 chemicals in commerce. Only a handful have ever been tested to make sure they're safe. So this was supposed to be a really um, kind of landmark and really um, kind of innovative thing that we would work on. And so other things that impacted children, like the lead and, lead and copper rule, which regulates lead in drinking water and, and really other issues that, um, again, the administration was really keen on kind of settling before they, they rolled out. So I was really happy to be there. Um, we know the mission of PA is to protect human health and the environment. And to me, that is everything. I'm like, I'm a mission-oriented person. That's what I want to do. So at the time of being there, it was exciting. Um, it was, again, fresh in my career. So for me, I really um, appreciated it. It was also at that time that I really got a chance to interact with um, Mustafa Santiago Ali. He was still an advisor at EPA at that time, the Office of Environmental Justice. And um, some of my mentors also came out of that office. And I was very grateful to be able to work with them um, work with folks in the schools. Um, we had a sort of research arm in the Office of Children's Protection as well as the schools and outreach arm. So we were working with folks in the state level and um, the regions. So it's cool. It was really, really um, a good time. But I think what kind of the tipping point for me was understanding that the kind of things that we were doing um, because we were about to transition to a new administration obviously didn't know that the administration would be the one we're in today. But at that point, it became clear during the transition that everything we had worked toward was, could be in limbo and could be rolled back or rescinded, meaning that these things that we hoped would help people could actually harm people. And that mm. to me today, I, I would say, is, is exactly what's happening. So I left EPA in 2017. Um, in July of 2017, but I started my kind of exit strategy probably around the time that Mustafa submitted his resignation letter. And if folks haven't read that, I encourage you to read it. It actually got a lot of attention um, because it was sort of um, an acknowledgement. He'd been there for almost 25 years, an acknowledgement of, of having sat through different administrations and realizing that this administration was going to be very different, right? This is only the beginning. Again, we couldn't know what we know today. Um, but it, and say in some ways it turned out worse than we thought. Um, so, so realizing that um, this administration came in and wanted to shrink the budget for EPA. They wanted to shrink the size of the EPA by one third. And the EPA had never been fully realized and operationalized with the full budget that it needed to operate and with the amount of people it truly needed. Um, so that was harrowing. That was really scary that, um, that we would have less people. And so, yeah, people were leaving. I saw that happening. 
Um, I decided that it was too early in my career to be sitting idly and to, to be working with in an agency that, again, could be doing harm to people. And so that was what led to my transition. Um, I was very fed up with feeling silenced. Um, we went from meeting with administrators, so at meeting with Gina McCarthy, almost weekly at the, toward the end of the um, administration, to the point where I never got to meet the administrator um, mm. who at the time was Scott Pruitt. Um, he, he sort of hurricaned himself in his office. I don't know if people remember, but he wanted to get a soundproof booth for his office so that he could have these private calls. And it was, it was, it was very different. Um, and, and all ways that I would say are, are pretty much negative. I, ca I can't really think of a positive. Yeah. Um, and so again, <laughs> that was part of the impetus for saying, I need to figure out how to continue do what, what I'm doing, but maybe on a different, maybe on a different team. And so I ultimately decided to leave. Yeah, no, I, and, I, and I hear that. So based upon what you know now, <laughs> um, that was the right decision for yourself, you feel? Yes. Oh, well, well. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, let me be fair. I do <laughs> believe those who stayed need to stay, and I appreciate it. Because, you know, everything ain't gonna, is not going to last forever. We will eventually transition to a new administration. And God willing, we will in just a couple of months. And to the extent that people who have the continuity of institutional knowledge, that's so vital because not everything is written down on paper or, you know, in a file somewhere. So we do need people who've been able to see, you know, what was done in previous um, administration, especially what did this current administration do, um, because we don't know everything in the public. I can definitely say for certain that the public does not know everything that the EPA has done so far in this mm -hmm. current administration. And so we need people who actually have been keeping tabs and who know what's been happening to be informative for the next transition. So um, I do personally feel like it was the best decision for me, but I appreciate my colleagues who are still there. Do have um, both close friends and close colleagues who stayed at the agency um, who are career scientists or career staff and, and plan to stay. And I'm grateful to them. No, no, that's important. Shout out to them. That's actually important. A lot of those folks are, are good people. There's, there's some good people who had to go through some, some horrific situations um, these past four years. In that, um, we do know that the EPA has rolled back many of the hard-won gains for clean air, clean water, uh, toxins, all those things. There's literally been over a hundred uh, regulations that have been rolled back that literally protect our communities. So I guess my question to you is that what would what do you think are the first steps if a new administration does come into play? What are the first steps to help rebuild EPA um, back to at least even to where it was, and if not better? Yeah, I, I honestly, it's going to take a lot. Right. Because you got to realize with rollback or anything that's been rescinded, that means you have to do work to undo that and then try and do something proactive to actually help people. So it's, it's sort of a and and then a then situation. So for for the transition team, so usually between um, the election and in January, like February or so, there's a transition team that's in place um, and that team will be um, sort of. Uh, under Biden's tutelage in a way, we really need to sit down with folks who are still at the agency, some of the political appointees who are who are there um, currently, and figure out really what's the lay of the land. Um, there are groups outside of the agency that are working to um, 
to basically help the transition team think about what are the important issues to be keeping in mind, what are the, the most important rollbacks out of those hundred that might need to have um, the earliest kind of like, you, not only the earliest um, priority, but that might be um, kind of the most at-risk army people. So um, when we think also about the courts or the Congressional Review Act, there are some actions that EPA will try and take at the end of this administration that can actually be reversed because of um, because of the turnover in Congress or even the turnover in the administration without having to really do too much work to, to, um, to rescind or, or to sort of reverse actions. And so that'll, it'll be really important to think about what are the priority issues um, and how are they going to best tackle those. And thinking again about the advisors, who's going to be advising on these issues, and ultimately who's going to be the best person to be the administrator for the agency. Um, I think they're going to have to figure out how to fully fund the agency and get more people back mm -hmm. into staff level positions. Um, because again, there was an exodus. And so we're not operating at the same capacity we were four or five years ago. Um, so it's going to be important to just hit the ground running and really get in there um, and, and listen to the people who've been there long enough to help say, you know, here's how we can do this well. Because we've had Republican administrations, we've had Democratic administrations. This one may have been on the extreme side, I would certainly say. But there are examples from other transitions on how to do this well. So we're not starting from scratch, which is a good thing. Yeah, no. Do you feel that when they when when that hopefully and prayerfully that rebuilding happens that we will that the position of the administrator should be actually a cabinet level position so it should be secretary of, of the environment and name alone yes I think the administrator has um, really does sit at the table more often than not but there's no reason for it not to be at least secretary level position. Um, on par with we see with human health services or any other administration like um, the you know, housing or urban development or anything like that. It should be up there as well. Yeah, I agree. Now, your EPA research focused primarily on early life uh, exposure to environmental pollutants and resulting uh, in the effects for those who, who didn't know what those effects of the pollutants were on them. And particularly on children, I guess I'm really going to focus on the children aspect. What was your kind of your research that you discovered on the toxins as it impacted children when you worked at EPA? Yeah, so um, again, being out of the Office of Health Protection, that office exists is because um, we always like to say children are not little adults. They um, are physiologically very different than adults. They have very different behaviors and very different vulnerabilities. Um, so when you think about a child, they're breathing a lot more um, per their body weight than adult. When you think about what they're ingesting, um, that's a huge thing when we wake for an infant that's ingesting um, breast milk versus ingesting formula. Um, that's what they might be having for the first, let's say, six months to a year of life. What if they're drinking lead-laden water on that, mm. during that time? What if they're drinking other toxic pollutants in their water? Um, we know there are intrinsic benefits to breastfeeding, um, but not all, not all are able to have access to breastfeeding. So what are those, those physiological differences that might arise? Um, that really are setting the stage for what that child can achieve over their lifetime. 
So it is really that we're prioritizing um, understanding of what pollutants are doing what and what pollutants are impacting children specifically, and then not just children, but pregnant women, so specifically the fetus. Um, so my research was actually focused on that very early life period. So around conception um, to the third trimester to what we might call the neonatal period, which is just, just very shortly after birth, um, up until being a young child, um, an infant to being a young child. There's, there's different um, developmental stages that are impacted differently. So if you're, let's say, assaulted with an environmental pollutant like lead or like asbestos or like, um, I mean, there are so many arsenic, there are so, so, so many that can have detrimental and deleterious effects on children. Um, and they may impact not only their neurological development, but physical development. So it can lead to physical um, harm as well. We see, especially for black women, that that's um, an issue when we think about the maternal mortality weight, we think about children who are born with low birth weight, children who are born preterm or with preeclampsia. Those are all issues that are linked to environmental harms as well. So um, at EPA, we're concerned with prioritizing children and all of the developmental rules that we're working on and regulations that we're working on if we think that there's going to be an impact to children or an impact to communities. And I always think that the most vulnerable are the ones who are, are Black children, Black and brown children. We're the ones who are not only dealing with, obviously, the, the mental harm, but having these other factors, these somewhat racialized social factors that also tend to impact our development as well. Um, and then I guess the last thing I'll say, sort of specific to my research at EPA, I was looking at carcinogens, so compounds mm -hmm. that are known to cause cancer. And what's really interesting um, is that with carcinogens, they are, they're, they're not sort of all created equally whenever you're exposed. Um, if you're exposed at a really young age, if you think about the fact that it takes maybe 30 years, let's say, for someone to develop cancer or 20 years, some, it takes much less time. Some cancers are much more aggressive. But if you're a child and you're exposed to a carcinogen, um, you have your whole lifetime where you might actually develop cancer. And so my research is wow. trying to understand, yeah, we were trying to really understand what is sort of the, what stage of life, uh, what life stage, as we call it, or what part of development is really um, going to be essential for potentially impacting if a person will have cancer later in life. And believe it or not, EPA does not currently think that pregnant women are, um, are, need to be protected from carcinogens. So the fetus yeah. is not currently protected in our regulations um, when we think about carcinogenic harm. Um, I've actually was a part of a research study and publication that showed um, there are effects on the fetus need to be accounted for and actually increase the likelihood of, some of, of development of cancer at other points in life depending on different types of chemicals. And so it was trying to justify this need for EPA to actually acknowledge and regulate chemicals based on the fact that they can cause harm to the fetus as well. Um, so that's another issue that EPA can take care of if, if, if and when that does, that transition happens is, is simply starting by protecting, protecting pregnant women um, and especially the fetus from harms from carcinogenic effects. So that was, that was part of my work there among um, other policy development issues. But yeah, that's something near and dear. And I really think we're behind as a country in addressing those types of harms.
Indeed. Did you, did you see the article in New York Times about um, uh, particularly the, the impact of toxins on the climate crisis on unborn children, particularly on black, black women? Did you see that article? I did. Yes. Yes. What are your thoughts about that? I think it's accurate. I think we knew it going into it. I'm glad that there's quantitative evidence, though, um, another layer of the climate crisis on our communities, on Black communities specifically, because um, one professor of mine at Michigan has always said um, the most dangerous place for a Black woman giving birth um, and the most dangerous place for a child, for a Black child is also while that process of birth, because we have notoriously high maternal mortality rates and infant uh, mortality rates across this country in different zip codes um, on par with what you might think of being a whole different country. So the fact that climate change is going to be yet another impact that's going to um, kind of make it more um, kind of more harmful for folks to be um, to be in the hospital, to be being born. I think that that's that is something we have got to address. Um, if you really think about the fact that it's not just people being in the ho being hospitalized because well, I mean not hospitalized for birth, but the harms from climate change following birth, right? So you're thinking infant mortality rate is also the first year of life. So what's happening outside of the hospital? What kind of environment might a child be exposed to when they're home? And if there are um, certain, let's say, natural disasters that are happening, maybe a child's born during hurricanes and um, there has to be an evacuation. Like it, it's, very, it's a very volatile time for, um, for both women and for really young children to be um, in a really unsafe time for them when we think about these types of disasters and that they're going to be increasing in frequency over time. Um, so for me, I feel like the evidence being there is just yet another sort of checkbox of like, okay, we need to take a shift. Like there's, there's really no reason that these types of issues exist. Um, I don't know if you also saw that there's article, that another article in New York Times showing that black women um, and black, black, just black folks in general are better off with black doctors. Mm, I did see that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah white doctors and so i think there's it's a multi-layered issue when we look at our health system um and the way climate change might impact that really makes me really is, is a scary thought when you see all you see and you begin to connect the dots as a scientist as a as a leader um in our movement and i don't want to throw this word around loosely but do you sometimes feel like it's genocide yeah i mean i don't throw that word around loosely either and I don't answer it loosely or idly either. Um, I feel like environmental racism is genocide. Um, there are so many people who should be here today who are not um, simply because of the place that they were born, the zip they may have been born into, the race that they were born into. And that is clear. I mean, that's clear as day. It's an indicator we've known about for decades. Um, and so I, I mean, my heart thinks about the communities, especially down in the Gulf and down in Cancer Alley, where we know that the types of um, chemical facilities that exist there, whether they're oil refineries or petrochemical facilities or manufacturing facilities, um, they're placed intentionally in communities. And they are there not only 
polluting the community and taking up uh, real estate value, depleting the real estate value. We're talking about people who may have lived on their land since sharecropping, since well after slavery, and their land is being taken from them or polluted. Their drinking water is being polluted by facilities that are going unregulated. That is genocide. Ultimately, when we look at the number of people who should be here versus who are not due to these environmental harms, due to the cancers they're experiencing, it's, it, it, it absolutely has to fall under that category. It's a human right issue. Mm. Thank you for your honesty on that. I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm from the Gulf Coast, if you didn't know, but... Uh, I didn't so know. I Where are you from? Oh, I'm wait, you're from... from- I was born in Shreveport. So, uh, I mean, you know, then you, you know, I'm clear. I'm a hundred percent clear. I'm that's why, that's why I fight like I fight. I fight, <laughs> I fight for that very reason. But I also know that fighting can't be it. And you, I know that a demonstration without litigation leads to frustration. So you also work for Earth Justice. And so for folks who don't know, that's, uh, t- well, tell them what Earth Justice is. I mean, I know it's one of our litigators, but what do you do there? Um, and what's going on with Earth Justice? And I, and I want to ask you, because it's also, I know, a big green, I'm going to add this so you know where I'm coming to, that I know they've been trying to be an anti-racist organization. And are they successful? And what are your thoughts on that as well? Yeah, that's a huge question. So I'll start with what is Earth Justice. So it's an environmental law firm. It's actually our nation's largest environmental law firm. It's also a nonprofit law firm. So we work in public interest law, specifically around um, environmental statutes like the Clean Air Act. Act, like the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, um, legislate, um, statutes that regulate our national monuments, protecting our monuments, protecting our wildlife and endangered species. Um, and so it's really broad in terms of what we do. We really touch really all facets of the environment. And so for that reason, we're split into different programs. I work in the Healthy Communities Program specifically, um, but we also have a team that works on climate and energy and this transitions to clean energy. And we have a, a program that looks at um, protecting our lands, our wildlife, and our oceans. And so we all do, of course, work um, simultaneously. We work together. But the Holy Communities Program is really different because it actually works directly with people, represent um, and partner with community groups um, and other environmental organizations um, to advance um, environmental protections. So often we're suing the EPA. We have hundreds of active litigation cases against EPA and other agencies, um, specifically trying to fight the rollbacks and rescinded rules that would protect people. Um, we're trying to compel the agency to act more quickly on casework that might be delayed, might, um, where we can go to court and compel them to act more, uh, again, act faster. And then we might also intervene on cases where it's important to um, kind of work to on um, protections that might be um, packed by industry groups, let's say, and the industry groups that take EPA to court to weaken protections. We will come in to kind of intervene and help hopefully protect those existing regulations. Um, so that's a lot of the litigation work that we do. We also 
have work um, at some of the state and local level where we're doing more legal advocacy. So we're working with groups to advance um, issues on, let's say, specific facilities and permits and fighting on um, permits that might be up for renewal um, to make sure that those permits are actually protective of people who live in the community who might need, live near a facility um, that is a notorious polluter. Um, so it is really kind of a broad, again, kind of sense of work that we're doing. Um, we've been instrumental. A lot of my work has on clean air issues, so air toxic issues like folks who live, let's say, um, in Houston, living in Houston near the Houston Ship Channel. Um, there are dozens of refineries and manufacturing facilities that at any moment could explode or cause harm to people living um, very close to the fence line of those facilities. And so we've been instrumental in trying to compel EPA to provide not only an increased protection for communities, but also for first responders. So people who are going in once, let's say, a chemical facility has an explosion or a fire, they need to know what they're walking into, what they're going into. Um, believe it or not, all of that information is currently under, under protection um, in favor of facilities and those industries such that even a first responder going in may not know that they're going to, that they need um, a face mask so that they can be protected against um, something that might cause them harm beyond the fire. So that's just an example of the type of litigation we might be involved in. We like to call it impact litigation. Um, and we also have another kind of arm of our, of our organization that works on policy and helping to advance policy at, um, in Congress that would protect people and that would help to um, help to kind of really make these bedrock statutes like the Clean Air Act and the Clean um, Water Act more effective. Um, so those are that's just a bit about what we do. And um, Earth Justice has been doing this for decades now. It's, it's very much an organization that is what we would call a big green. Um, and I think one aspect you asked about sort of this idea of being anti-racist. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's, that is certainly something we're talking about and Earth Justice has made statements on and has a long way to go. Um, we do have a long way to go if, that is ultimately a part of that aspiration. I think the um, there are ways in which we've made, I think, strides over the years, especially with the groups that we've worked with and the type of um, acknowledgement of just how much space we take up. I think um, especially because I can say as a person who has my own like sort of a smaller nonprofit, um, a community focused nonprofit that an organization like Justice all also takes up space, right? But in, in, in ways that um, I think the legacy of an organization like this has been able to grow um, over all of these years, be impactful, but also needs to make space for, for organizations that are trying to, um, that are doing really important work in communities and on behalf of communities. And so I think that's also an aspect Earth Justice has been trying to reckon with and reconcile is um, how does it better serve smaller organizations that have a similar mission, but may not have the same kind of massive amount of resources that a, an organization like Earth Justice has available to it. I think that's a big part of anti-racist work. It's called distributed distributed justice. And mm -hmm. we have to think about, um, you know, organizations that are trying to increase their impact. 
how does an organization like Earth Justice help that happen? Um, it's necessary because our, you know, we actually started the Healthy Communities Program is a much kind of newer program in the organization. Historically, we were protecting wildlife and lands. And I think that that's kind of indicative of the environmental movement as a whole. Like it was started um, with the idea of keeping people off of land, keeping indigenous people off of lands and saying that in order to have a pristine environment, people have to, um, people have to be away from it. And, and so in that manner, if that's where we started from with this idea of exclusion, then we still have a really long way to go before we're truly inclusive. Um, but it is making strides in doing so. Um, and I think that that's encouraging. And I've seen it. I've been there now for three years. I've seen improvements. And I am a very kind of vocal voice on um, trying to compel our leadership to do more and to do better, especially by its employees who come wanting to do good work. Um, I mean, a lot of us could be elsewhere, but we're, we're there because we really believe in the mission and in helping people. So, um, so again, we try and keep them, we try and keep our, our folks in leadership accountable too. Very well said, very well said. And I, we can go more into that, but uh, I'm going to let you leave. I'm going to let you, I'm going to say what, I'm going to let you just leave it with what you said there. I will say that I'm on, the board of Green Two Point. <laughs> I'm on the board of Green. Yeah, I'm on the board of Green Two Point and so uh, we, you know, we we've been trying to um, help fix that a little bit. So I'm just, I, yes, I, that's why I, and measurable, and and that's why I'm that's why I'm, that's why I'm glad you are you are there. But I also like you, you. I don't know when you sleep, Michelle. I'm not actually sure if you actually do sleep. You probably don't sleep by all you do. Because you, because because you are also the co-founder and chief Adv advocacy officer for Black Millennials for Flint. Um, so, and Black Millennials for Flint is the nation's first and only grassroots nonprofit environmental justice and civil rights organization fighting to eradicate harm from lead exposure across the country. So, what does it mean to be uh, both? and environmental justice and civil rights organization. Um, and I know the cities you serve are Flint, Baltimore, um, the DMV, the District of Maryland, Virginia area, and Memphis. Um, so what are the connecting environmental justice issues you see in all those cities? Yeah. Um, so thanks for acknowledging Black Millennials for Flint. That is um, a labor of love. Um, I have to shout out our uh, founder, president, and CEO, Latricia Adams, because um, part of the way we were founded um, back in 2016 was definitely in the wake of the Flint water crisis and realizing we needed to do something. Um, at that time, we were members of the Greater Washington Urban League and knowing that you know, here is a, a legacy civil rights organization, um, we wanted them to do more. And, and, and decided that instead of simply sending resources, and which we did, we and continue to do, because I'll, be, I'll say this right now, Flint ain't fixed. The water mm. crisis is still happening today. Um, and it's been over six years. So um, that is a travesty. And this president has not done what he needed to do, what he said he would do um, in terms of fixing the pipes in Flint um, and making sure people have safe drinking water. That's still not the case. Um, so Flint will always be um, a service area of ours, and 
we really wanted to activate because um, actually what you mentioned earlier, what was happening with Freddie Gray in Baltimore and knowing that there are businesses around lead issues in, country, in cities across the country. Um, I'm based in D.C., so I lay my head in, in Washington, D.C., um, having left Howard. I just, I just really love it here. It's my second home. Um, and so I have me here and my godsons are here. So it's definitely home for me. Um, so that's a part of what made a DC also be a, one of our service areas, but believe it or not, there's lead issue here too. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's something that DC is trying to reckon with. Um, Latricia is actually from Memphis. And so, um, Memphis has lead issues. What's the commonality? Mm -hmm. These are predominantly black communities. Um, these are communities that have experienced disenfranchisement on many levels, but especially failures on the environmental side. Um, that is a legacy issue that once it was taken out of gasoline, which impacted all people, including white people, excuse me, white people, um, it, it has been left in our cities as a plague. Um, and Baltimore is a great example where we see um, a great and harrowing example, I should say, of where we see lead impacting homes. Um, especially vacant properties in, in Baltimore um, that still contain lead and that lead can get out into the soil and be deposited there and it stays there for um, forever. It's a metal, it's not going to break down. Um, so that's, I think, another commonality between these, these areas. And there's also a rich history of civil rights in each of these, uh, each of these areas and cities. Um, I think they, that they've each had issues that have had to be activated over the years, especially in the Flint, Flint water crisis. People didn't sit idly and um, and let them and, and just and sit here and say, well, what can the government do? Like they've been fighting for their lives um, all of this time. And we see that kind of activation in other cities as well. And so because we're a small organization, our goal is not to come in and like fix issues. It's to help those who are on the ground and in these communities um, to mobilize, to be educated around like, okay, you can't see, taste, or, or smell lead, it's, but we know we have to test for it. How do we compel um, agencies to do that testing? How do we get our children tested? And when we know that lead might be impacting us, how do we actually then turn and get intervention services so kids can get help that they need and get the services that they need? Um, and then how do we prevent this from happening again? We have to get policies in place. So those are the kind training that we um that we're doing in in these service areas um and it's really with folk, with folks who look just like us um it's it's usually younger people because at the end of the day i have to think about it i'm a woman of childbearing age i'm in my 30s so um a lot of us are the ones who are going to have young children and who have either have young children now or who will become pregnant and have young children so they're the ones who are going to actually also be impacted by lead at some point um, because this is an issue that has not yet been resolved. Uh, so I think some, those are some of the kind of ties that allow us to work in these four areas. And um, our, our goal is a lead for USA. So we're not stopping here. We do have a capacity issue because, yes, I have a full-time job and I don't not sleep. What is that? I, it, it's, it's definitely <laughs> not fair. It, it, it's limited. Um, so right now we're trying to do the best we can where we are and where we have the capacity with folks on the ground. Um, and so I'm grateful for those people. I wish we had more because I have so many shout outs to give to folks, um, especially in Flint and Baltimore doing the good work and in Memphis and in DC doing the work, um, who are really what makes it possible for us to exist. So, um, 
so yeah i think i, I think um we do see a future where we operate even in other cities as well yeah no well we should connect on that hip-hop caucus the org that i work for is in in all those cities um and doing some great work we have leadership committees in each one of those cities in memphis and baltimore in D.C. and in in Flint slash Detroit, so we should definitely, yeah, we should definitely connect on that. And then one one day when I see you, I'm gonna tell you the my in my Memphis craziest young dro uh, Fantasia story that I can't say during I can't say during the podcast, but I can't but, was, but I'll tell it to you. It was actually around organizing around. Uh, a bit of issues, but working with Young Dro was man. I'll I'll tell you the story. But, but it, <laughs> oh man, I, I I got quite a few of those. I got quite 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 a few of those. But this is my last question for you. Thank you so much for all you do, uh, and this who you are. Um, my last question for you actually is based upon that. Um, you know, as a black woman. Um, who is doing this work, one, what's your advice now for um, particularly uh, other millennials and Gen Z and particularly other young women who are in this direct line of you, I mean, and who are in this line of, of climate crisis, climate justice, environmental justice uh, uh, kind of work, and also knowing all that you've talked about and all that you've seen um, in regards to what led, and you thank you for that amazing description or breakdown earlier, um, what led and all you've seen in regards to toxins and to what can happen to our children, what, what, what keeps you hopeful? So what's your advice and what keeps you hopeful? Yeah, uh, thank you so much again for having me because this has been a really cool conversations made me think about things and connections too so like you said we got some things to follow up on um uh so i'm excited about that but in terms of advice i'll start with this um we have inherited a what we call the existential crisis not just climate change but it's also environmental racism and that's going to keep happening it's going to keep going and being pervasive in our communities unless we stand up for it and keep fighting around it um, but we can't do it alone. We can't do it in silos. And one of the things that, my cat, I apologize, um, that has been really effective for us is coalition building. So working with people who actually believe in the work, like who are in different fields. So you might be in finance, you might be, uh, I don't know, in communications, might be an attorney, but working on something completely different. Maybe you're in corporate law. It, it really does not matter where you are. The environment is a space that we all have to connect on because it's all we have. Like we only have this, um, this one earth, this one society that we live in, especially in the U.S. So I think my advice is to just figure out what that connection might be. If you're creative, if you're a person who, um, you know, has anything you think is in terms of your passion that you can contribute. Honestly, there's a way that you can figure out how to connect the dots with the environmental space as well. Um, so I really want us to get out of silos and to really work together. And that's been effective because Latricia will be the first to tell you, she's like, I'm an educator. But if you think about education and the types of health impacts that I just discussed, then you know that the environment is going to have an impact on how kids learn. 
And so we do have a duty, um, whether whatever, again, your background might be to actually be thinking about um, how we can, again, work on these issues in an intersectional way. Um, and that's something that I've actually been learning more recently, I think, from folks in Gen Z. Um, there have been leaders who are really trying to say, you know what, we have to do this better and more efficiently. Um, what's a better way that we can talk about these issues? And there's the term intersectional environmentalism has come in that space. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I, need, I ascribe to that. So my advice is to just keep thinking on these things, keep innovating, reach out to, I mean, we're all over social media, but like we're very responsive. Um, if you're trying to learn more about how to work on these issues, because if there's anything around this podcast that actually kind of got you thinking, there's so much more out there to learn. Um, so my advice is to, to stay also, I would say as a scientist, that if you like science, there's a space for you, especially among our HBUs. Um, Howard is amazing, but there are so many other HBCs that are really fostering um, our future scientists. And, and, and I would say like going ahead and applying, whether it be to Meharry or Mora House and Spellman um, or FAMU or Tuskegee. I mean, they're, these, are, these are schools that have a legacy around working on agricultural issues and um, justice issues to boot. And so um, my advice would be to, to seek out those programs um, and those schools and to realize like you'll see people who look just like you who are, who are gonna also be working on science and engineering and other fields um, that maybe historically other women and girls have not been, um, have not been supported in. And if it wasn't for Howard, I might not be in this kind of field. Um, so I have to pay homage there. And as far as thinking about why I can stay hopeful, I think, um, I feel like now more than ever, the issues around the environment and climate are just like getting faced. I mean, even in the, the debate we saw, um, Trump fumbled on it, but Biden actually could talk about climate change and the impacts and has a plan around it. And so I'm hopeful because I think this is not just like, something like people are talking about in silos anymore and just people um, are, you know, sitting in labs and saying, oh man, there's an issue. It's actually getting FaceTime in mainstream media. Um, and I think folks who are younger are fearless. I mean, they're fearless and fierce and, and really saying, hey, this is my earth. <laughs> I'm going to have to, you know, one day I'll be here and, and you and me are going to be gone, right? We're, we're going to be you know, we're not all living forever. So we have to, we're passing along an issue to, to kids who are like, this is not okay. We have to do something about this. Um, so I'm hopeful because those leaders, those future leaders are, um, are more sensitive to this, this fight. They don't have to be convinced that climate change is real. Um, and because they don't have to be convinced, they can start earlier and sooner um, to actually fight for a, a better place to live, a better environment to live in. Um, that keeps me very hopeful. So we have a reckoning to deal with, and I think it's being dealt with currently. And, a, and I guess the last thing I'll say is with justice, generally speaking, we're finally seeing like this country have to reckon with that. We have to reckon with our past um, in ways that our system has not worked for people. Um, and I really feel like we're in a, we're going in a direction where that's going to be addressed, if not in our generation, then certainly with Generation Z and those to come.
like what you heard on this episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Think 100, think 100.